name is Charlie, um, and I'm a senior here at, um, at your RUF. Uh, tonight I'm going to be reading uh, scripture, and if this is your first time, um, look around your seat. There should be a sheet of paper with the scripture tonight. Tonight's scripture comes from Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 1 to 14. The Lord took hold of me, and I was carried away by the Spirit of the Lord to a valley filled with bones. He led me all around among the bones that covered the valley floor. They were scattered everywhere across the ground and were completely dried out. Then he asked me, Son of man, can these bones become living people again? O sovereign Lord, I replied, you alone know the answer to that. Then he said to me, Speak a prophetic message to these bones and say, Dry bones, listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I am going to put breath into you and make you live again. I will put flesh and muscles on you and cover you with skin. I will put breath into you, and you'll become, uh, you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I spoke this message just as he told me. Suddenly, as I spoke, there was a rattling noise all across the valley. The bones of each body came together and attached themselves as complete skeletons. Then, as I watched, muscles and flesh formed over the bones. Then skin formed to cover the, their bodies, but they still had no breath in them. Then he said to me, speak a prophetic message to the winds, son of man. Speak a prophetic message and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, O breath, from the four winds, breathe into these dead bodies so they may live again. So I spoke the message as he commanded me, and breath came into their bodies. They all came to life and stood up on their feet, a great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones represent the people of Israel. They are saying, We have become old, dry bones. All hope is gone. Our nation is finished. Therefore, prophesy to them, uh, prophesy to them and say, This is what the Sovereign Lord said. O oh, my people, I will open your graves of exile and cause you to rise again. Then I will bring you back to the land of Israel. When this happens, O oh, my people, you will know that I am the Lord. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live again and return home to your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done what I said. Yes, the Lord has spoken. This is the word of God. Let's pray, and we'll take a look at what Charlie read, Ezekiel 37. Lord, I've been very encouraged as I've studied this passage, to see that Ezekiel didn't show up with some great sermon or message that he had worked so hard to prepare to preach to this valley filled with dead people. He didn't have an eloquent illustration that dazzled everybody and they remembered it. He, didn't, he wasn't even that quotable. He said weak words that you told him to say, and dead people were resurrected and came to life. And that is what we're banking on tonight is that you were the same today that you were then and that you could, you could breathe life into this room. Some of my friends who know you, me, who know you, can still feel so dry, so lifeless. And some of our friends in the room are lifeless and need resurrection. So Jesus, um, let this weak chunk of time be made strong because you're present in here. I pray this in your name. Amen. 
Well, three things I want to talk about in the next few minutes are difficulty with God's sovereignty. We should probably start there because if you have ever thought about his sovereignty or heard someone talk about it, it's probably produced some heartburn at some level. The second are surprise in his sovereignty. It's good news. It's good news, even if you're still not convinced yet, really good news. And finally, how do we respond to a sovereign God? What do we do with that? But first, a story. Um, There are those times in life when you remember exactly where you were, who you were with, and what you were doing when they happened. Two years ago, I was on Timothy Road, about to pull into our neighborhood, coming home from winter retreat, when I heard on the radio that Kobe's helicopter had crashed. Where were you? Um, I was in my driveway putting a door into my house when I heard about the January 6th riot. And we went inside to watch on the news as like the Capitol is engulfed in smoke and thousands of people breaking it. And I remember that whole day. But then there's these outlier memories. Nothing catastrophic happened. Um, Nothing really historical happened, but it's a memory that you'll always remember where you were, who you were with, and all the details that went down there. And I had one of those moments, one of those where was I when moments, when somebody for the first time ever told me that God is sovereign. I was in the second floor of the fraternity house on Millage. We had just finished a Bible study that I had probably begrudgingly attended, felt guilty, didn't want to upset the person who invited me, so I went. And I don't remember what happened at the Bible study. That's not the memorable part, but the conversation that happened outside the door afterwards, I could almost recite to you word by word. It was with two of my buddies, still friends, uh, Justin and Ryan. They went to RUF back in its first few years being here. And um, I loved these guys and they loved me. So this was not, it didn't start as an argument, but uh, whatever happened in the Bible study led to a conversation afterwards where they were kind of calmly, patiently explaining to me um, that God is sovereign. Kind of some of the things I was just saying a, a minute ago. The Bible says he's sovereign. He's in control of everything. He determines everything. He's in the driver's seat. His decisions are ultimate, not ours. And that was, that was so new to me. It wasn't just confusing. It was irritating, big time. And that's why it was a memorable night. I got so angry because after that, the conversation turned a little more personal or intimate in the sense that they continued to tell me that if God is sovereign, he's sovereign even over things like faith and our spirituality and salvation and being in Jesus. And that I'd really never heard before. Maybe I just didn't have ears. I, maybe I'd heard the words said before and didn't pick it up. Maybe I just never heard it. But it was really new to me and it was really irritating to me. And the reason why it was irritating, and I had a I mean, I think I was conscious of this even in the moment, definitely in the few days after. The reason I got so angry is I immediately connected the dots that if God is sovereign, I'm not. That's why I got angry. Because I imagined myself up to this point in my life, which includes the entirety of my college years. I made it through all of UGA with the uh, deep assumption that my decisions in this life are ultimate that I am the captain of my faith, the master of my destiny. And that produced both a lot of pride in me and arrogance, but also a lot of fear and anxiety. It was all up to me, right? 
And I thought that um, basically that I kind of controlled God even when it came to kind of forgiveness and mercy and um, salvation. It's like, you know, I can kind of say this prayer or recite this formula or pull out this trump card in whatever moment and say, wait a minute, I got the card, I got the ace, you've got you've to forgive me now. And I lived that way, and I believed that. And they must have seen that in me as they were kind of patiently, calmly talking to me about this stuff. Probably prayed for me that night. That was my difficulty with God's sovereignty, is that it challenged my own assumption or my own claim that I was sovereign. I don't, I'm not going to assume that's everybody's difficulty, but I would imagine it's, if, you, if it's hard to hear this stuff, even the first few minutes, this could be why. It's not enough room for two sheriffs in town. Or it challenges um, your sense of control over your life and important details about your life. But that night, and this is in the, the second reason that night was so memorable, that night was kind of the beginning of the end of my misunderstanding of the nature of God and the condition of my heart. That was when it all began to unravel and God began to open my eyes. Um, So that night was kind of the beginning of me coming to learn that, I think from the Bible, a lot of it was from the scriptures and reading them, and a lot of it was experientially. I was feeling it in my day-to-day experience that he is, in fact, sovereign. And my condition was that I was spiritually dead. Let's go back in time. Some of you, or actually a lot of you in the room, have been around REF for a few years. So you probably went through freshman fellowship, at least some part of it. We go through in the fall of freshman fellowship, when freshmen get here, we, we kind of take a semester to go through the whole story of the Bible. Start in Genesis, we end in Revelation. We're just trying to give you the big picture, the plot line, the movie of the scriptures, so you can know where all the scenes fit in. Do you remember one of the first two or three weeks we do a talk every year called How Far We Fell? And it was about Genesis 3 and what the Bible refers to as the fall of humanity, kind of when the human project fell off the tracks and took all of creation with it. (laughs) Into chaos, into death, into misery, into alienation from God, out of his favor, into all these things. And we we have this, I don't know, the, the illustration that we always use just to refresh your memory if you were there or tell it to you if you weren't is when it comes to falls, distance is key, right? If I trip off the stage, which for four, four and a half years now I've been terrified of doing, it will happen one day and I will probably be okay. But if I fall off the stage, we're probably good. Like I'm humiliated, but my body is fine. A lot of weeks before you get here, that projector doesn't work and we're up on a ladder trying to fix it. Now, if I fall off the ladder, that's probably going to put me on crutches for a few weeks after. Maybe a broken ankle, sprained something, back messed up. There's a huge radio tower back here. You fall off the top of that, I don't know what your odds are of survivability from a fall that high. How far did humanity fall is a key critical question. Scripture, God, the one who didn't fall, the one who didn't become deceived, the one who didn't become twisted and gullible to propaganda, the one who still tells the truth, he says that we fell from heavenly heights, stratospheric heights, not survivable. This is why he said, in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, surely you will die. He meant it. Um, A delayed physical death, an immediate spiritual death. 
This is why he said throughout Scripture, the wages of sin is death. He meant what he said. Now, it can, this, this language about falling and spiritual death can be confusing, especially if it's newer to you, because you can be like, well, let's say even like right now, let's say you're not a Christian. It can be confusing. It would be very understandable to say, but I feel very much alive. I mean, my brain, I'm processing the words you're saying right now. I can read the Bible. I can consider these deep things we're talking about. I feel spiritual. I feel warm and, you know, encouraged when we sing these songs. I have a curiosity in the things of God. How are you saying that I'm dead? And to explain that, I think let's shift metaphors. Um, have you ever seen a car that's been totaled? There's been a spate of totaled cars in our community the past like two years, out of nowhere. And the funny thing is, um, prior to my own truck getting totaled two years ago, I th my mental image of a totaled car was basically like if a freight train hit a tiny little like Toyota and then it burst into flames and it was this mangled wreck of metal. I thought that's what a totaled car looked like until at a staff meeting, um, my, uh, we came back out after three hours of a meeting and my truck was up on the sidewalk and the front left corner of it was smashed in, the tire all mangled, and it was like sitting up on top of the hood of the car behind it. And a little note there for the police, call this number and we'll give you your case file. It's like, what happened to my truck? Well, uh, they come in tow it. The insurance company says it was this lady's fault. She fell asleep at the wheel, hit my truck, and Casey's car, too. And um, her insurance company will pay for it. Probably a two-week repair. We'll get you a rental car. So I'm like, great. He calls back a week later, and he says, sir, actually, uh, the mechanics looked at it. They put it up on the hoist, and sorry to tell you, but your, your truck is totaled. And I remember I was right there talking to him on the phone and I said, I don't understand how it was totaled. Like a week ago, we were saying it needs a new tire and some bodywork in the front left quarter panel. How is it totaled? And he said, well, she hit it in, at, a, at such an angle and such a speed that it bent the frame. And I said, well, can you bend the frame back? <laughs> and he said, sir, I don't think you understand what I'm saying. Your car is permanently undrivable. I said, okay, I'm tracking with you now. Um, here's the point, and that's what a totaled car is, permanently undrivable, which means like the, the primary function of an automobile is to drive. Like my truck, I could have said, actually, I'd like my truck back. It's a lot of sentimental value. I'm going to put it in my front yard as like a statue to our decade together. Or I could have said it makes a nice seat, really comfortable seats, they were still usable and I could just sit there whenever I'm tired. But that's not the purpose of a truck. The primary function of a truck was now dysfunctional. It was incapable of fulfilling its reason for existing. Genesis 3 says humanity was totaled. Sin totaled you. 20 years old, your body looks like it's going to live forever. It's amazing. That's great. I get it. It can be confusing to hear that we're dead in sin and corrupted and everything, but that's what it means. Our, we are incapable, impossibly incapable of fulfilling our single reason for existing, which we've already talked about the past several weeks, to know your maker, to love him too, to be at peace with him and peace with the world, peace with yourself and peace with your neighbor for your neighbor, 
not in competition with them. Fundamentally incapable of doing that anymore, of serving that purpose. So we might still look great. We might still have a lot of good things about us like comfy seats or a good person with a philanthropic attitude about the world or a servant heart. All that good stuff might be there, but God is saying our original condition as sinners born into this world is that we've been totaled and we're incapable. We're not drivable in a sense. And God is very keen. He's so faithful throughout history to tell us the way it really is. To tell us the way it really is so that we can act, respond accordingly. Not to fear monger, not to rub our faces in our shame, not to say, see, but to say, you've got to own your true condition. You've got to see the way that you came into the world. You've got to see accurately what you actually need. If you misdiagnose your condition, a cure will elude you forever. So, here in this passage, finally, we'll look down at it, God comes to a real man named Ezekiel, a prophet of his, who is prophet during the years that Israel had been exiled, banished, evicted for breach of contract. They broke their lease repeatedly, time and time again. And the landlord, their God, said, you can't live in my presence anymore. You can't live in the promised land anymore because you break the lease every day and you don't care anything about it. So I have to discipline you. You're out. And he kicks him out to the curb or Babylon. And Ezekiel is the prophet that he rose up to help Israel understand its true condition. This is what happened, Israel. You're not here because you ran into a spell of bad luck. You're here being disciplined by the Lord to soften your heart again to bring you back. So God comes to this man, Ezekiel, who lived in Tel Aviv, modern city of Tel Aviv. And um, he says, and he carries him off, verse 1, the Lord took hold of me and I was carried away by the Spirit. This is not a dream, this is not a vision, this is a real day, happened in real life event. Physical world, not up in heaven seeing something, not a vision. It said, I was carried away by the Spirit of the Lord to a valley or filled with bones. Uh, other versions will say to the valley filled with bones. And this Full disclosure, this is an educated guess, what I'm about to show you here and what we're about to talk about, but um, Ezekiel lives in Tel Aviv. There's lots of valleys. I mean, anywhere there's topography, it creates valleys, little like indentations between two hills or two mountains. But in Israel, there's one valley, and it's the Jordan Valley. And we can pull up that first picture just to show you. I don't know if you can tell from your seats, but that's the Jordan Valley. Um, Jerusalem is right at the, that middle lake, just west of that. Jericho is just above that middle lake. The Dead Sea is this bottom lake down here. And that's the Jordan River Valley. And all of Israel kind of caves into it. That's the valley. And it's probably the valley, I think, that the Lord carried Ezekiel to. Let's go to the next picture, just another. Uh, yeah, you get it. So you see the big valley right up in the middle. Um, Tel Aviv was kind of over here. Carried him over there. And then the next picture. This is what it looks like uh, when I was there. Some of you there two weeks ago. This was my attempt at a panoramic shot of the Jordan River Valley. I couldn't do it. This is holding my camera due west and then going all the way due east. And that goes up hundreds of miles. 
I show you this so that you can get an accurate mental picture of the scale that we're talking about when Ezekiel says, the Lord carried me to the valley that was filled. Other translations will say filled with a multitude of dry bones. And he says, the Lord led me all around among the bones. The ground would have looked like this. This is just the picture I found on the internet, but um, the next picture Scale is off, but that, as far as the eye could see, you look north to the horizon, that's what you see. You look west, you look east, you look south. Bleached bones. Not people who are like, I'm dying, help me. Or scared people, we're going to die, save us. People who had been dead a long time. That's the visual. That's the field trip that the sovereign Lord took his prophet to and let Ezekiel see. God is giving Ezekiel an aha moment. And he got Ezekiel to record it. So he was giving Israel, his people, an aha moment. And because you're here tonight and you're hearing this very event read to you, he wants you to have an aha moment. What's the aha moment? It's a, simulta- it's a field trip that simultaneously introduces you to your true condition as you entered this world and God's true nature. That's, that's the double aha. So they see their true condition, the true diagnosis, that we're not sovereign, we don't hold our own cure in our hands, we're not a valley full of sick people or COVID patients, a little hydration, take it easy for two weeks and you're back on your feet but a valley filled with dead bones. You're remembering back to the Genesis language, the day you eat of the fruit, surely you will die. The wages of sin, the, the end result of sin is death. This is what Jesus is telling Nicodemus that night they met. Nicodemus is saying, how does someone become a Christian? How does someone enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, you must be born again which is presuming you're not alive. You'll see this as we go. Some of you know Jesus. You are in Jesus. The spirit of Jesus has breathed life over you and inside of you. So this is your past condition, not your present condition, if you're in Jesus. If you're not in Jesus, this is a present picture of how every friend of yours in this room used to look and how you look. This is still going to good news, so hang with me. That can be really hard to hear. Hang with me. This is the condition of everyone in the room, past or present. Some of us, though, this is a past condition that doesn't describe you, but it does describe you at a a feeling level. You feel dry. You feel like you live in that desert. You feel like you're just bones sitting there. Like one author put it, vibrant green has become ashen gray, The music and dance of the gospel have faded away. Delight in the Lord has been replaced with disconnect, distrust, and despair. Whether this is past condition, present reality, or present feeling, a feeling of familiarity of of a past condition, it's descriptive and familiar to all of us at some level. This is a picture, it's a, it's a graphic picture, it's an experiential picture that God wanted Ezekiel to walk through. And I think this took a while, because God is slow with a lot of things like this. He's methodical. 
and he walks Ezekiel all through it. And I don't know how long it was, hours later. He brings up a question. And I love that God raised the question, not Ezekiel. God asks a question after this field trip is in full mode, and he says, Ezekiel, can these dead bones live? And you can read what Ezekiel's response was, but my question to you is, can those dead bones live? Some of you know they can. Some of you are still have a question mark over that question. You don't know. Maybe that's why you're here tonight. Maybe that's why you accepted an invitation to come. Maybe that's the journey or the search you're on. Some of you have answered no, and you're here because your friends are here. Some of your friends no longer come here, no longer go to church, have thrown away the faith because they've answered the, they've come up with the answer, no, these dead bones can't live. Their cynicism's answered it for them. But God asked Ezekiel and he asked us, can these dead bones live? And Ezekiel says, O oh, sovereign Lord, you alone know the answer. And I think in there, there's probably hidden a couple of different answers from Ezekiel. There's, a, there's an answer of, of course they can't, if it's just these bones. I mean, they've been here all this time just sitting there. If they could have done something about their condition, maybe they would have done it by now. Um, but I, there's a lot more than just a no. Oh, sovereign Lord, you alone can answer that. And, and Ezekiel is waking up to what we're talking about tonight, that God is a sovereign God, not just because he keeps saying, oh, sovereign Lord. Every time he refers to the Lord, he says, oh, sovereign Lord. But that's not the reason. He's, he's living like God is sovereign. He's saying, this is above my pay grade. I don't know why you have me here in this post-Gettysburg apocalypse, but you can do anything, sovereign Lord. So what do we take away from this before we push on and, and, and cover those last two points more briefly? No matter who you are, God, it is safe, I'll say it that way, it is safe to go with this God and to look in the mirror and to be brutally honest about your past or your present. If God isn't like this, it's not safe. Don't do it. Lie to yourself. Suppress the truth. Rationalize your behavior. Forget your past. But if this is the way he is, it's safe to be honest and to say, perhaps, I'm dead. This passage gives me a fitting picture of how I feel. Um, even uh, for the rest of us, it, 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 it's an invitation to be honest. It's also an invitation to take our face away from the mirror after that and to shift it away from ourselves to the Lord. And this is what I love about Ezekiel. He stops looking at the bones and he looks back to the sovereign Lord. And he says, you know, you know. This is the other answer Ezekiel has to the question, can these bones live? Yes. Yes. Because I didn't just stumble into this valley by myself. This isn't like some archaeology trip. God brought me here for a reason, not to rub in my face how dead I am and will always remain. This is a graphic picture, too, that salvation belongs to the Lord, which means it is of the Lord, which means it is a gift, which means faith is a gift. 
not the product of work or effort. This is what Jesus meant in Matthew 19 when he told his disciples, with man, salvation is impossible, but with God, anything is possible. So God walks Ezekiel the long way through these bones on this field trip, and the field trip could have ended there. Can we appreciate that fact? God would still be good, and it could have ended there. Just wanted you to know, please go report back to Israel who they really are. But the conversation continues. Can these bones live? And apparently there's more than just a no or I don't know. Verse 4, then the Lord said to me, speak a message, or other translations will say prophesy to these bones, and say, dry bones, listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I am going, notice the pronoun, I am going to, notice the certainty, I am going to put, not leave breath available for you to get, I'm going to put breath into you and make you, not enable you to live again if you do this, that, and the other, but make you live again. I will put flesh and muscles on you, and I will cover you with skin, and I will put breath into you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. That's the dry bones' first participation in this event. (laughs) Then you will know that I'm the Lord, after the Lord has already brought you back to life. That's the first piece of the action they get. Then the light bulb will go off after you've been resuscitated. Lord! Are you this good? Are you this sovereign? That, this is a picture of the goodness and the joy and the surprise of his sovereignty. And I say surprise because the reason I was angry that night is I really felt way down deep in my bones. I felt safer if my future and my heart and my soul was in my hands than in God's hands. What does that reveal about what I think God's really like? Not good. Dangerous to sinners which in a way he is, we talked about a few weeks ago when he's holy, but I felt like he's going to ruin it. I can't trust him. Propaganda? See how I've believed it? Do you? I felt safer with Ben sovereign and God as an afterthought than God as sovereign and Ben as an afterthought, but God tells his prophet to do this, and then Just imagine, go back to the scale, imagine the sound, the sound effects of a valley that big with that many dead bones there, and he says there was a rattling and the wind blew, the ruah of God. The same wind, the same spirit that hovered over the chaos in Genesis 1 is the same wind, the same breath, the same spirit that now blows across this valley, and the impossible happens to every one of them in this valley And let's appreciate, too, the significance. Can anything be more personal than being so close to a person that you feel their breath on you? This harkens back to Genesis 2. How did humanity get its vitality and its life to begin with? The Lord God took up dust out of the ground, and he breathed life into its nostrils. Humanity's first picture was nose-to-nose with the face of God this intimate encounter as this God, through his life-giving, resurrecting breath, originally creates us and recreates us 
in redemption and in grace. That's the joy of his sovereignty and the surprise of his sovereignty is what he does with his sovereignty. What he does with his power is unilaterally act on behalf of those who cannot act. And by the way, lest you think that this is some innocent death, these people, oh, these innocent souls died in the valley. Um, go down to verse 12, where he says, son of man, or sorry, verse 11 and 12, son of man, these bones represent the people of Israel. And they're saying, we've become old dry bones. All hope is gone. Our nation is finished. Remember, they're in Babylon because of their wickedness, their sin, their past that they couldn't undo, the genies that they'd let out of the bottle that could never go back in. That's why they were there. That's why they died. And the Lord still blows over his people and brings them to life. That's what he does with his power. That's what he does with his sovereignty. Listen to what else. Um, I didn't put this in the passage just for the sake of space, but if you have a paper Bible, you can look further down a few verses from what we stopped at. This is the rest of his promises to his people after he has resurrected them. 37, 21, I will gather the people of Israel, sorry, and, I, and give them this message, Ezekiel, from the sovereign Lord. I will gather my people from among the nations. I will bring them home. Again, notice the pronouns and notice the verbs. Verse 22, I will unify them or bring them into one. One king will rule them all. Verse 23, they will never again pollute themselves with their idols and vile images or rebellion, for I will save them from their sinful backsliding. I will cleanse them. Then they will truly be my people and I will be their God. 37, 24, my servant David will be their king and they will have only one shepherd. They'll obey my law. They'll be careful to keep my decrees and my servant David will be their prince forever. Verse 26, and I will make a covenant of peace with them. An everlasting covenant and I will give them land and increase their numbers and I will put my temple right in the middle of them. Verse 27, I will make my home among these people. I will be their God and they will be mine. Verse 28 is the last one. And when my temple is among them forever, the nations will know that I am the Lord who makes my people holy. You see what God does with his sovereignty? Is this a better outcome than if you were sovereign? And it was all up to you? and what you did with your decisions and what you did with your power and what you did with your agency and what you did with your opportunities. All we've ever gotten with our decisions and our opportunities is winding up dead in a valley, stuck forever in a condition we couldn't escape. And the way that God has used his power and his sovereignty is to, to deliver us right out of that. That's the field trip. You've been invited on it, too, to look around and to listen and to see what's happening and to pull it into your life. Our last few minutes, I just want to spend on that last point of what do we do with the sovereign God? Do we just sit there and say, well, I mean, my only role in this is just being dead. <laughs> uh, what do I do? Do I just kind of coast and, and God does all of this? Well, here's a few things. Let me speak to different, different folks in the room. Believers. 
Uh, you have experienced the breath of God. The resurrection power of Jesus has come into you. You know him, you love him. There's peace with you and God. I didn't say you're perfect. I didn't say you're emotionally steady in this great confidence in the gospel, but you know what that feels like. You know what that means. You believe Jesus is your refuge and your hope. What should you do with this? This is a great picture to remind you of your condition when God made a move towards you. Romans 5, when you were dead in your sins, when you were weak, when you were ungodly, Christ died for you. If he loved you that way then, how much does he love you now that you belong to him, that you're his, and that he's yours, and that he sanctified you, and cleaned you, and adopted you, and justified you? Go back down into the valley and look around. That was you. You are a Christian owing only to supernatural explanation. You're a miracle. You are not a Christian because you're spiritual or have a religious heart or grew up in a Christian house. There's plenty of people who grow up in a Christian house. There's plenty of people who are spiritual who do not know the Lord. So let it humble you. Let it eradicate all boasting, which is where Paul always goes after he talks about God's sovereignty and our salvation. It eliminates boasting. When, when you think about God's work in your life, you're supposed to think, it's a, look at what God did. God wants to say to you, look at what I've done. Look at what I've done. That's the source of your joy, not your performance lately. Believers who are asleep to God's sovereignty, um, maybe you've underestimated the magnitude of your past condition or your present sin. And you need to realize your salvation is supernatural. You didn't get yourself into God's good graces. Um, you were as dead as dead gets. And let that deepen your appreciation for what he's done in you. Um, friends who have friends who no longer go to church, come here. Parents who raised you in the church and have abandoned it all. This gives you hope. Dead is dead. And resurrection, I imagine, is just as hard to resurrect one dead body as another, right? If salvation is up to people and their decisions, and their wisdom, and their spirituality, and their coming to the light, um, if it's just up to that, you probably have a lot less hope for your friends who are deconstructing. If salvation is of the Lord, you probably have as much hope for them as you do for your most spiritual friend who doesn't know Jesus, who has the biggest, best heart. Dead is dead, and resurrection is resurrection. This restores immense hope for everybody. If you do not know the Lord, maybe you're waking up, waking up to his sovereignty and to hope again. I hope you feel seen and understood and, and known that your big secret to reveal to the Lord is not, I feel so dead, I feel so cut off from you. I feel so, what are the words Israel says? I feel so dry. That's not your big secret. God said it first. He described you that way first. It's simply a matter of, Lord, I agree with the way you've described me. That is me. Oh, help. But I hope, unlike a lot of Christians you might talk to, I hope you feel seen and known and understood by this God as he shows you your true condition, but doesn't leave you there and say, field trip over, stinks to be you. 
But he says to you, do you believe that these dead bones, that your good intentions, that your past, that your efforts to do better, do you believe all these corpses around you are dead forever? Or do you believe that I can breathe life into them and make you new? Lastly, the takeaway for all of us is listen. This was the only command I could detect in all of this back and forth between God and Ezekiel and the dry bones. It's the only time the bones are commanded to do something. Did you pick that up? Into verse 4. Dry bones, listen. Listen to the word of the Lord, the breath of the Lord. That's a command from the God of resurrection who breathes out his spirit liberally and generously on those who don't deserve it. Are you listening to him tonight? Will you listen to him in the days ahead as this comes back to mind? Will you begin to talk to him and say, Sovereign Lord, you can do the impossible in me too. John chapter, nine, uh, John chapter 20, the resurrected Jesus who has just paid for the sins of his people, who has just walked through the valley of the dead bones and become the dead bones himself under the judgment of God, that resurrected Jesus who got up again, who is resurrection and who is life, the first time he re-encountered his disciples, they were hiding in a room scared. And he goes up there and he talks to them. And this is what John 20, 19 says. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. Remember the covenant, remember the promise? that God told Ezekiel to tell Israel, peace be with you. And when he said this, he breathed onto them and he said, receive the spirit, the ruah, the breath, the wind of God that brings resurrection comes out of the mouth of Jesus Christ who is resurrection. Listen to him. Let's pray. Jesus, that's our prayer that you would do that, that you would be that, that you would help us, that you would do the impossible. We get it, it is impossible for us and that's actually burden lifting to say, yeah, I felt it was impossible and it is and you get it too, but now do the impossible, do it for us, do it on our behalf. I pray this in your name and for your sake. Amen.